welcome to the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Solidarity Winnipeg is working to lay the basis for an eco-socialist political organization. By that, we mean we are a small group of like-minded people who work in a coordinated way in community groups, in unions, and on campuses to build grassroots power, to educate people, to be effective eco-socialist organizers, and to build support for the long-term goal of breaking with capitalism and starting a transition to eco-socialism. Because Winnipeg is located on Treaty 1 territory, we acknowledge that Treaty 1 is the homeland of Anishinaabeg, Cree, OG Cree, Dakota, Dene peoples, and the Métis Nation. The Canadian state has carried out genocide, ethnic cleansing, and forced removal of Indigenous people in order to clear the land for settlement by Europeans. The colonization and oppression of Indigenous peoples is not a thing of the past, it continues today. But around the world, Indigenous peoples are leaders in the fight against capitalism and environmental destruction. We have a lot to learn from Indigenous cultures and teachings that will help us heal our relationship with the land and with each other. We would like to give a quick shout out to Midnight Sun magazine. Midnight Sun has been publishing thoughtful, stylish analysis of left politics in the Canadian state and beyond for a full year now, and they're fundraising to keep compensating comrades for in-depth writing and editing work. Look them up on Patreon, that's Midnight Sun Magazine, and consider becoming a supporter. Awesome. Hello, everyone. Hello, listeners. This is the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. Again, thanks for listening to us. Today's topic is going to be the future of unions. And it's a topic that we've discussed within the group. And it's also a topic that we know a lot of people have a lot of things to think about and say. Joining me today, I'm Teddy. I'm a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. And other people today on this recording are... Hey, Posey. I'm here. Hi, everyone. Hi, I'm Misha, also a member of Solidarity Winnipeg. And I'm Vivian Ho. I'm the president of QP2348. Awesome. The four of us are here today, recording it in May, just after May Day uh, in 2022. And we all have different union experiences. Some of us are in union here now. Some of us are the president of a union. <laughs> so, but we're going to just have a discussion about it. So the first thing we're going to talk about is we're going to just talk about what unions are, what they're not, and a little bit about their history. Because although uh, a lot of people know about unions, um, not, the union density right now is it's quite low. There's a lot of people who don't experience work through unions. The unions are something that some people have never been a part of. And even if you know what a union is, or you might've seen movies that have unions, or you're seeing the organizing actions uh, and organizing drives and campaigns around the world, uh, you might not actually be in a union or know much about unions from direct experience. So that's going to be our starting point. I'm working in a unionized workplace and basically there's different kinds of unions, but Usually when people talk about unions, they're talking about a labor union. And labor unions are workers as a collective legally representing themselves. They have a contract with their employer. 
unions are workers collectively having some conditions that both the employer and the workers agree to uh, in their workplace. Now, depending on where you live, there will be labor laws that sort of determine some of the broad and basic things. Like in Manitoba, where where we are, we have minimum wage. That's determined by labor law. You don't need to have a union to sort of determine that. However, labor laws are just a very narrow collection of laws and sort of regulations that impact and determine the conditions of the workplace. Unions are when workers get together and they have additional agreements that the employer gives them that affect their workplace. So it can it can be agreements around wage. It could be agreements around how you can have time off. Um, it can be extension to things such as like sick leave. It can be different uh, things re- related to uh, hours of work, rules around overtime, basically a whole set of agreements and laws in a contract that extend beyond the very low level that is uh, provided by the labor laws, wherever it is that you might be working. One important thing to note about unions, especially uh, for thinking about them from a socialist perspective, is that unions are contradictory spaces. They are kind of places where there's a lot of possibility to build solidarity with other workers, to organize together and develop a political consciousness as workers, which obviously is really great. But also unions are brokering the conditions of the workers' exploitation under the capitalist system. They're not necessarily abolishing the conditions of exploitation themselves. They are thus kind of still within capitalism and not inherently uh, revolutionary. And so there's sometimes a perspective that unions are all uh, very left-wing and political. And sometimes this can really not be the case. Sometimes, uh, you know, the union can be very bureaucratic and very conservative, even in a lot of important ways. And I think it always pretty much better to be in a unionized workplace than a not unionized workplace. But what a union can look like is uh, can be very different. When I first joined a union, I had no idea what the union was. We just saw inequality at work. Like a bunch of friends and I was working in a workplace and we noticed that everybody's wages of, you know, in similar jobs were, were different. And to bring equity in, we thought of like a different solution and one of the solutions we were taught, like a sure way to guarantee like equal wage was to bring the, the union in. It took us about a year for the union drive and another year for, um, to, to ratify our collective agreement and through bargaining. I similarly, like I knew what unions were, but the first time I was, you know, worked a unionized job, I felt so distant from everything about it. And I didn't really know what was going on. And I didn't become like involved in my union until later, you know, you pay your dues and depending on what the job is, especially if it's like a public sector union that has been around for a long time. And I don't know, that it, it seems like just a, a regular daily condition of, of your work. The thing I was going to add was about uh, democracy in unions, about how like at their best unions can be very democratic spaces, but that's not always necessarily the case. I think union over the years like has changed. Like the union we're now familiar with are now what we consider business unionism. We we are more like an administrator than in the past where we, we have like direct action because of the collective agreement we we are not allowed direct action anymore like the the collective agreement has pretty much 
handcuff us. Uh, a lot of us describe it as a golden handcuff. Although they provide us with like certain benefits, um, there's very little direct action that we can do during the, the life of a collective agreement. The history of unions is that uh, workplaces and bosses uh, weren't keen on workers coming together to fight back against their conditions of exploitation. Because, of course, as we know, in a capitalist system, the greater a boss can can exploit a worker or a group of workers, the more profit they can make. So there's a direct uh, clash between the interests of workers together and a boss. Um, and so workers... Um, are very weak going against bosses one-on-one. But of course, as the famous phrase is, you know, the boss doesn't need any one of you, but the boss needs all of you. So a union sort of wields the power of workers acting collectively to better their conditions because in that unity, they're able to, to leverage the strength they have based on their position as a worker. And so just connecting to what Vivian was talking about, where collective agreements are the form that a lot of that unions orient themselves around today they didn't they didn't have this historically like unions were were often not recognized by bosses and and unions had to fight really hard to to even be considered by bosses at all and so um direct action and um taking you know militant action was was part of how unions even were formed in the first place. However, over time, this, the way that thing sort of fell to be and, and the way that it is right now is that, yes, there's a collective agreement. Dues are collected automatically in something called the RAND formula. And unions, um, in exchange for having the agreement, the, the, the details of the agreement, which go beyond the minimum labor laws, agree to not strike or take job action I don't think the labor laws um, covers unionized worker, though. Only employment standard covers ununionized worker. I think because of the collective agreement, we, we have lost democracy, direct action, and class mobilization. Um, the declining of union density and weakening of the collective bargaining strength due to high employment rate, precarious employment, capital capital mobility due to free trade, hostility to trade union and loss of large manufacturing sector. Like times has changed and the union has not kept up with it. We are moving from a manufacturing industrial, you know, unionization to more a service industry, like service unionization, like service industry sector. Um, the majority of unionized workers are women and they work in the service or nonprofit sector. So the union need to really keep up with times. And we need to find a new way to organize and mobilize our membership because the, the union structure, like the, the way they unionize people needs to change. It's still very colonial. Uh, the leadership on the top are predominantly male and white. <laughs> Unless we can change, we, you know, the union density will keep on dropping. Even with the limitations of unions, oftentimes I can't really think of an example where workplace conditions 
um, would be worse with having union than not. I think most of the time, like unions uh, usually have uh, better pay, better benefits, these kinds of things for workers. However, if you see what unions are are getting in collective agreements and stuff like that, it's it's most of the time, it's not that great. The gap between uh, the, the way that unions, they used to call it a union premium, like the premium of being a union job and, and that sort of like the benefits of that are, are declining. Like people in general, whether you're a unionized job or not, your the quality of life, at least in this part of the world, is is really declining. While capitalism and capitalists are, are, are you know, taking in huge amounts of money. So the need for unions to be able to keep up and to change with the times um, is, is important for expanding union density and things like that, of course. And then also even within the, the membership who already are in unions to be able to, to, to actually get the gains. That is the whole point of having a, you know, a union to improve your quality of life. Uh, you know, while we basically said like most workplaces are better with a union, there are kind of a couple of notable exceptions. And the one we've talked about here is police unions um, as a thing that we feel like we should actually oppose as as socialists. I think it kind of plays into uh, the different ways that unions work because police unions notably function in a different way in that they're not really about collectively bargaining for uh, a better deal for workers or anything. Um, police are a, a certain kind of worker whose role is to protect capital and protect private property and do kind of a horrific amount of harm to uh, to people. And the way that police unions work is, again, not so much bargaining for uh, workers' rights, but for protecting the uh, membership of the police for if there's a, a police officer who uh, who kills someone and there's kind of a legal, some sort of legal measure brought out or there's backlash against that from activists, from community, the police union often functions to uh, make sure that that person doesn't get in trouble to give them, you know, back pay if they, if they have to, you know, be like let off work for a while. Um, you know, a lot of just really, really awful uh, stuff like that for, for people who uh, should be held accountable. And that is kind of why Police unions are not something that we uh, support, and they they function kind of in a pretty fundamentally different way that isn't uh, isn't kind of in line with what we value about unions. I just wanted to plug, and I'll, I'll put it in our show notes. Um, this is two years ago now, in 2020, uh, James Wilkes published an article on Briarpatch called Parasitic Solidarity, uh, which is specifically about the police union in Winnipeg. Um, it's a very relevant point. And... Please read it if you're interested in police unions. But Teddy, you're right. A lot of the unionized worker, even in 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 QB twenty three forty eight, their their pay is not so great. It's bit like barely above minimum wage. And these people are frontline workers who do essential work. And when we want to go, like when we're going through bargaining, and I ask like, why can't we increase the pay? But they say that that's the market rate of the pay. Like. It's the society that thinks that workers who do essential work deserve that market rate of pay. Um, that's a, a good point, Vivian. And it reminds me of the Stella's strike, I guess it also was two years ago now. That was a big kind of messaging thing that people kind of didn't understand because sometimes workers get, who don't really think about themselves, you know, don't have class consciousness or don't even 
um, think in terms of solidarity will get angry or or confused as to why like certain workers like you know oh they don't deserve more money like there can be a kind of negative thing of yeah like that's the market rate like the Stella strike they weren't even um striking for higher wages they were just striking for better working conditions and better scheduling but yeah like that there was a kind of messaging push from not my Stella's um that a lot of people hadn't even thought about before who had talked to just you know if a a worker gets paid more for a job that's similar to what you do, even if you're not unionized, that has a benefit for you because it's more likely that your employer will have to raise your pay to like, you know, that the market rate for labor goes both ways, right? Like if wages go up for some workers, um, it ends up benefiting other workers. It's not necessarily like unfair. And that's a big reason why if you are a socialist, not in a union, it's important to support strikes and, and union activity when it makes sense. That's why the union has the obligation to protect and support uh, workers who is in a precarious job, the immigrant worker, the, the, the minimum wage worker. If we, we lift them up, everybody will be automatically lift up with, with them. Like nobody should be left behind. We sh like union should be bargaining beyond the collective agreement not just for the membership but for for all members like for everyone who's working that's a really good point and not the default way we're socialized especially at this time where union struggle is so low and so often narrowly focused on just collective agreements. It's not the default way that we're kind of socialized to think about it. And it's really easy as well to uh, not even catch that. Yeah. That, that just sort of those like pro boss, pro separate individualistic kind of messages have permeated in so many ways that we, we, we think of things. So I, I think it's actually uh, just like you said, Vivian, it's important for unions to have a, a view that goes way beyond just their own narrow members' immediate interests. Because uh, often things are counterposed as like bread and butter interests versus activism or broader aspirations. But especially from a socialist perspective, but even just strategically for the workers themselves, like the power is really in unity and collective action. And that's like, you know, anything that can be done that would uh, increase those kinds of threads of working together is is better for us overall but then going even beyond that thinking about it as socialists our project is not simply to come up with a good way to allow bosses to get rich off of our work it's not enough for us to say like you know having more sick days or having more vacation time while being in a context that prioritizes this invented market over human and natural life, it's not enough for us to just get a good deal in that situation. Like ultimately what we want is a completely different way of organizing society. And so if you think about that in the long term, I know we're going to talk about this more later, but if you think about that as a broad objective, you come back and you recognize that, wait a second, um, just like what Misha said, like police unions are are in the way of that kind of a goal or even prison guard unions and unions that only think about, you know, this crab bucket mentality of pull other people down because 
you're not getting enough or something like that is, is not at all going to get us there. So I, I just think that the tendencies for, for people to really buy into um, pro boss messaging that someone's gain is your loss and your gain has to come at another worker's loss. But that sort of competitive view is it's possible to think about unions beyond that. And that's obviously what we push for. And the pandemic has exposed a lot or emphasized a lot of this like sick days that we need. A lot of ununionized workers still had to go to work like, you know, in, in this, you know, when we were having the, the highest rate of pandemic at one point because they couldn't afford to take the day off. They, they didn't have sick days. I actually wanted to ask you, Vivian, about like another kind of Winnipeg-specific thing. Because you were talking about, you know, different um, types of workers and the types of workers um, who are a part of unions, like mostly women. And also even just thinking about, you know, you were saying, Teddy, about the different attitudes uh, towards workers, if they're on strike or if they're part of a union. Because I feel like it's a bind both ways. It's like if you have a job that's seen as like socially important, then how dare you ever... Um, risk going on strike or go on strike or, you know, because your job's too important to stop. Um, I'm thinking about the recent, I don't know if it was a strike or a lockout, but with the railway um, workers, capital is all up in arms and, and, you know, oh, the government has to step in because these people's, you know, the work can't be stopped as too important, but, you know, you can't think you could then treat the workers better if their jobs are important. And similarly, that happens with teachers um, and the question I wanted to ask you, Vivian, was about this welcome place uh, lockout that I guess happened last year, because I feel like that was kind of similar to the guilting of workers. We weren't asking, they already cut my membership wages, and we already agreed to it because they proved that they had, didn't have enough funds. We're just trying to protect whatever benefits that's left, like um, maternity leave, and just to carry over the vacation from one year to the other, because none of them are from here, actually. <laughs> they want to go home, and it costs a lot of money for them to go home. So we were just trying to protect whatever we, we can. We're not asking them for even more money or anything like that. And we, the collective agreement was for, for one year only, and this year we're back to square one, and there's a possibility of the same thing happening again. And that's what I worry about. Like funding, like there's a lot of funding cut from the federal government, not just at that workplace, but at different workplace under under two, three, four as well. Like the what happened at Stella was disgusting. Like it was beyond the collective agreement of what UFCW could do for them. They they close shop and then they they move away. Like this happened a lot in in, in the states too with Walmart and and different like McDonald's or fast food joints where they can just shut down and close, uh, move to somewhere, somewhere else. And there's nothing the collective agreement can do. We can't touch them. The union can't touch them. Yeah. The, the Stella's thing really was so gross. And if, if listeners don't know what happened, like there was a, a strike at the Stella's location on Sherbrooke. It was like the one, I believe the one unionized location. They only, they only had two unionized locations, the, the one on Sherbrooke and the one on Osborne Village. They closed both down. Yes, exa- exactly. Um, and there, 
similarly, they weren't asking for higher pay. I think I mentioned that before. They were asking for, um, you know, better scheduling um, and just, yeah, the the kind of Stella's kind of hid behind the pandemic and, and closed the location and then permanently closed it and said it was because it was not um, making enough money, but it was very, very slimy um, and unfortunate. And many of the other Stellas are still operating right now that's not unionized. I, I think we won't get in any trouble if we just have the message, steal from Stellas. Just, yeah, exactly. just steal from, you heard it here first. Yeah, tip, tip high and, and steal if you must go. Um, yeah. We've talked a little bit about strikes. Um, it might be good to just kind of 101 lay out what that is. A strike is kind of when all the workers at a workplace walk off the job so that the employers are not making uh, not making profit. This also means that the workers are not making wages. So often they need support if they're going to go on strike. It's a really hard thing to do, but it's a really powerful tool and weapon if you want to use that kind of language to be able to make employers um, accept a better agreement or uh, to kind of win different demands that the workers are making. One idea that you see this kind of come up trending on Twitter every now and then, or kind of seems to be coming into the kind of collective consciousness a little bit more is the idea of a general strike, which is basically when uh, all the workers across um, all of the workplaces uh, go out on strike and nobody is working anymore. Uh, and with that, you can really change society in some big, pretty bigger ways because then the entire economy isn't working, not just a small part of it. Well, it's kind of cool that this idea has kind of been getting more traction online, different people are talking about it, realizing that that's a, a possibility, especially as people see like the pandemic response has been so bad. Uh, capitalism is obviously really terrible and getting worse. This kind of seems like a way that everyday people can kind of make some sort of change in the world that they see around them uh, as being uh, really negative in a lot of ways. But one kind of, I guess, thing that uh, to keep in mind uh, is that there's often not a lot of context given for how something like a general strike happens or even just how a strike happens. A lot of people aren't unionized to begin with. A lot of people don't have experience for what a strike is or how to support workers who are out on strike. And if we're going to ever kind of get towards the sort of place that uh, there might be like larger strike actions or a general strike. You know, there's going to be have to be a huge number of people who are really experienced in supporting workers who are going out on strike. And um, this isn't kind of going to, uh, you can't kind of just set a date and declare that that's going to happen. That's something that we're pretty, a pretty long ways away from. So I think, I think that's a good context for people to have. But also if that's a, a thing you've kind of seen uh, online, something you've, you've maybe read about the, the Winnipeg 1919 strike and kind of looked at some of the history of that and been inspired by it, as many of us have, you know, one way to start putting some of that into action is to either if you are unionized, get involved in your union, or if you're not unionized, uh, maybe see if there's some sort of um, support effort you can get involved in um, for striking workers. Maybe you can uh, come out there on the picket line and with them um, and ask them if there's different things they need, see if there's different kinds of ways you can support strike actions and um, different unionization drives. 
And if you can, don't ever, ever cross the picket line. So to be able to strike legally, your collective agreement has to expire for you to strike legally. Um, the same way you can go on strike, your employers can lock you out. So this is like mostly during bargaining where we want to exert more power or the, the employer wants to, to show us that they have more power so they lock us out. I have a question to throw to the group um, connecting to what you just said, Misha. And I feel like responding to the online calls and, and sometimes even posters and, and other places of a general strike and, and the way you laid that out is so important because the impulse is great um the mechanics and thinking about it in more details uh you know if we really want that as any kind of a goal it's we owe it to think about it and we can't just we owe it to ourselves to think about it and there's a lot on the line and it's not um yeah it's just i just really appreciate that inquiry and i was wondering i could see there being a kind of a concern i suppose Maybe a listener will be thinking about this and saying, okay, well, you know, you say general strike is, it can't just happen by calling it or whatever, but are you like against the general strike or, are, you know, like, so, so what? We have to just let the idea of a general strike go or it's not happening fast enough or, or these kinds of things. And I know that there's like a way for that to be very, very sort of, you know, not even worth engaging with. So I'm not talking about that kind of a reaction, but I am thinking about, for example, the balancing act between being serious about building worker power and also not trying to diffuse impulse and potential for combative, confident action, and then sort of <laughs> trying to figure out how to do that all in the real world. And so I, I, I just, like, I'm not, I'm not saying there's a one-size-fits-all answer, but I'm just wondering what do people think about that tension or do they see that as a tension or does anyone have any thoughts on that? I, it's been on my mind, especially in this latest round of bargaining at my workplace. Actually, the general strike, if you read through the history book, it, it, it didn't have immediate gains after that, though. The workers were pushed back for, like, unions were on the decline and there was a lot of horrible things that happened to union right after the general strike. It's only at, like, you know, years after the general strike that people thought like, like the idea of like, like a bunch of people coming collectively and trying to, to make gains. Like the idea is great, but I'm just afraid that like, you know, history might repay itself and we might see a pushback of 50 years Yeah, I kind of agree with you, Vivian, of like, it is really easy to look back at the Winnipeg general strike with rose-colored glasses and not to, to say it was a failure, but like, yeah, there were like horrible consequences, especially just like for the individuals involved, like the amount of people who were deported and just like, there are so many risks to striking illegally and even just like striking legally, like is so stressful for workers and like there is so much potential for solidarity and like imagination and transformation and like you know that there's there's so much powerful and like unions should strike more i'm not saying that like we sh shouldn't strike 
like we were talking earlier about the unionization drive, uh, Amazon, like the JFK eight successfully unionized recently. And that was an amazing win, but just today, which is May 2nd, um, the other Staten Island Amazon warehouse voted against unionizing. So sometimes it can be like frustrating or hard to understand why, like it doesn't just happen. Um, but yeah, it's good to think about like how there are really real consequences for workers who, um, are brave and, and do wildcat strikes or just even participate um, in regular strikes. Okay, back to what you're saying, Misha, about the like, you know, this posting like online of like, here's the date, like, let's just do a general strike, let's just do it. In some ways, I feel like that's a good instinct because I, I feel like people like that's where they kind of go or where they think when they're like, oh, electoralism isn't working. Of all the all the issues of, of capitalism um, in the world we live now, of like climate justice, migrant justice, um, racism, like all of these issues, we're, we're seeing how difficult it is to create any change electorally. And I guess I was wanting to segue like how unions can, you know, we were talking about a union representing just the workers and their interests, but how some unions are able to have like a broader vision of like improving the world for all workers. If anyone has, has thoughts about, yeah, maybe leading us into the next topic about like in a positive way, what role unions can play to like change the world. I think the key for future Canadian labor movement is to look for alternate solution that support workers' collective class interests. Um, we, we need to diversify the, and, and change the way we organize that's outside and beyond the collective agreement that might help us expand union density and mobilize members. Like right now, I'm having issues mobilizing people. People don't see themselves as part of the union anymore. But I believe there's still a role for the union in the future, only if they are able to, to evolve and, and change the way of organizing. Like a strong, healthy union is the key for a social democracy democratic and economical equality. Majority of my members are, are women and they're also um, BIPOC. So when they see the leadership uh, predominantly white and male, they, they don't see themselves reflected in, in the labor movement. So right now I'm trying to get more people, especially BIPOCs, to get more, them more involved in, in my local and bring them out to see what, what I'm, I'm doing. I, I'm, doing, I'm always doing a lot of social justice courses. Uh, I, I work with community, not cuts, industrial uh, workers of the world. I also am the founder of Women's March Winnipeg. I do the Women's Marches every year because like the, as a union, you need to be involved in social justice. That's the only way that we can push and, and advocate for our membership. We need to protect the rights of everyone, not just the collective agreement. I find the collective agreement very lim limiting. And pretty much most of the time my hands are tied because like, I cannot go on a strike 
until the collective agreement expires. But even going on a strike, there's a lot of consequences we, we need to consider because like you, you get strike pay. That's not much. Depending on which union you're, you're from, your strike pay can, like, can be barely a few hundred dollars a week. Like People have to think about their mortgages, their children, like how I'm going to feed my children. Like luckily for us, Bill 16 didn't pass through. So after 60 days, we can uh, apply for binding, um, binding arbitration. In most provinces, you can't do that. You don't know when the lockout or the, or the strike will end. So people are uh, hesitant to go on strike. I want people to be fair, pay fairly. That seems to be the hardest thing to do right now, even with a union. Like, although we get paid a little bit more, but not much more. Until the society and our government can think that, you know, like frontline workers need like a, a basic income, like a livable wage, we, we can't change much. Like in the in past, union was able to to influence like the the the, the wage gap, but right now it's diminishing too. So like the class, like the 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 gap between the classes are, are now getting greater and greater, and the middle class is like shrinking till nothing's left. The rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer. I'm, I'm like honestly worried for my members' future <laughs> because like their wage is not increasing fast enough, even with a union, fast enough to, 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 to match the livable wage right now, especially in, in a like, like post-COVID condition. But right now, COVID, like at this point, we don't even know like are we past it or not yet. <laughs> There's so many strains. And I'm worried, like the future is not good unless we, 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 we learn to diversify and, and evolve. Like the, the way that I think that union can, can move towards is towards a more open union concept that anybody can join a union if they want to and then pay a membership fee. Because like if that was to happen and, and like a Stella member wanted to join, like somebody who's a, in the service industry wanted to join a union, they can and they will have a protection and the, the, the employers couldn't simply say, I'm going to close down this place and move somewhere else because that their unionization like will, will move with them no matter which job they go to. I just had a quick question. Um, and we can maybe edit this out if it's not that, but I am like curious because uh, you mentioned Vivian, the like um, binding arbitration law in Manitoba with uh, strikes that doesn't exist in other provinces. And like, whatever happened with Bill 16? It got voted down by the NDP with the help of NDP. Okay, good. And God, they choose five. And that, that was one of the, the bill they choose. And I, I pretty much backed them. <laughs> Choose me, please. Yeah, because I just wanted to like say that even though like that is, um, and not to continue the like the the how hard things are um, for workers, but that that is something that we do have in in Manitoba, but like was under threat um, by Bill 16, even if that bill got 
um, shot down like that is something on the conservative agenda is like making, um, like changing labor relations in Manitoba to make it harder for workers and for unions? For the last 30 years, um, there have been a lot of erosion with labor laws that protect workers' rights. And that's the, the, also the reason of the, the, the union density decreasing. We are falling, like, it's not as pronounced here in Canada than in the States, where the unionization just went down the hill. But we are following the trend too, but slowly that most people don't even realize it. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm a frog and somebody turned on the, the heat on me and I'm slowly boiling and I, I don't realize. It. I automatically think about the way that big companies like Amazon and stuff, they use that tactic exactly. Like if, if there's going to be, or, or any, any employer that has the size to be able to play that card, they'll, they'll just take advantage of their size. And if there seems to be headway where workers are building some power and minimizing or reducing a bit of the exploitation that's happening, they'll shut down, they'll, they'll take they'll just uh, regroup. And this is exactly like a, a tactic that they use to undermine the ability to, for unions and for workers to make a difference there. And of course, like, in response to that, workers have um, historically tried to form larger unions or coordinate between different places. Or, you know, you saw a lot of this with the auto industry and how, you know, they took advantage of the different ways that different supply chains worked through different uh, non-localized chains of, of the whole manufacturing industry and then would interfere with that. But of course, in response to that, employers move plants and and factories to different places with worse labor laws uh, and had other ways to get around it. So it's definitely a challenge. And with any of these kind of battles for power in that kind of a way, there are real consequences to losing. And there's a real need to, to sort of figure out how to deal with that because yeah, we saw it with Stella's, we saw it with, we see it with all kinds of workplaces. I could imagine a sort of response to it that I think is promising, but not easy is when it comes to the question of strategy, it just, to me, that points out that the strategy of trying to treat a workplace as a localized thing where you can sort of use pressure just by ignoring the way that those are all connected is not a good strategy. You need to have a strategy that will somehow, you know, accurately take in the scope of what you're fighting against. When I think about what kind of strategy you need when it comes to thinking about how you can build that kind of unity to to have that level of power because you know it's not a small feat to not only organize many workers in one large workplace but for that unity to be strong enough that it even extends beyond that workplace we're talking not just hundreds thousands of workers that are not even geographically connected and when you think about that there is really no way for that kind of organizing to happen without a kind of strategy that that is very attentive to the necessity that ultimately like it's got to be membership and you know a rank and file type of organizing that will ever have the chance of handling that because like has it has been mentioned like labor laws get eroded so if you rely on those kinds of things to be your source of power Sure, maybe in Manitoba, Bill 16 didn't make it, but that doesn't mean that's the end of that. And in my workplace at the University of Manitoba, for example, 
the Public Service Sustainability Act didn't even pass, right? So it's still being implemented in spite of it not even passing as a law. So it's clear that like thinking about the law is a very limited approach. And in fact, it's actually having like worker power that will make the laws strong enough to do anything. Um, I think a couple of years back, there was a teacher in California, like they were not actually allowed to go on strike, but they, they still did. And they managed to get the community to support them and they make some gains over there. Los Angeles teachers strike is what Teddy said in the chat. I think that is what it was. Um, but that is like a good point, um, Vivian, about like, like we've said a lot, you know, if you're a socialist and, and you're not in a union or you like, well, if you are in a union, like maybe hopefully this will like inspire you to, to get involved. Um, but if you're not like, that doesn't mean you can't support like community support is like really necessary, especially in wildcat strikes, um, for them to be successful and like fighting against, especially like you know, media will like, you know, often um, take the side of the employer um, and present strikers and workers in a negative light. I wanted to kind of add some suggestions for reading and in thinking about like strategy and what is the role of like socialists organizing in unions as a political strategy. Uh, for a reading group last night, we read this great article and it's about the American context but we still found it quite interesting by Kim Moody in Spectre. That was about a socialist and, and class struggle in, in 2022 and kind of the, the conditions for worker action in the States. Like the conditions are a bit different in Canada, but it was still interesting. And I think it helps kind of contextualize if you're looking at what's happening in the States with John Deere or Amazon or Starbucks, if you want to kind of make sense of that. And similarly, thinking about kind of like on the ground rank and file strategy, the article by Mustafa Hanawe published, well, he's got an, an interview in The Breach that was really good. And also this article he wrote for Midnight Sun, uh, Fighting Amazon's New Fordism, is really great. And there's some like really specific stuff about what makes organizing uh, in Amazon's difficult, but also some ways in which like there is potential there. And there's also some stuff in that article about like specific, um, you know, demographics of the workers and having like cultural based demands um, for Somali workers and in Minneapolis and things like that. So really recommend that article as well. We'll put those on the show notes. Does anything come to mind from people's experiences of um, what kind of things have been, have you noticed people's um, minds change about or any kind of way that you've seen people sort of come in with one perspective about unions and, and, and the importance of unions or workplace organizing and these kinds of things. And you've seen that they've sort of had a, a, a change a view, a breakthrough, big, small, anything, because we know there's tons of barriers and we also need, know we need to connect with people and convince people of ways of seeing things that make sense to them, even if they don't already see it that way in that moment. 
the hardest people to reach are the people who don't don't think like you and me like the audience that we need to convince are probably not even listening to your podcast but like i would go like within my local i normally go to different workplaces i try to talk to them i try to educate them what's their rights uh Sometimes they tell me, like, what's the good of the union? They're just taking my dues. So I'm like, you know, you're, you're enjoying all these benefits and all this holiday and all this rights. Like, it's because of the union. The, the union is still very important. Like, if you don't have a union, your employer can just fire you. They don't have to have just cause. They just need to give you notice and tell you you're gone. So the best thing to, like, what... The industrial workers of the world like to say, educate, uh, educate, agitate, and mobilize. Because it's a lot of misconception of union nowadays. That's a good point of like people like, especially if you've been in a, if you're at a job that's like has a like very established union and like, yeah, as you said, has these benefits or things and this becomes like, you can, especially if you're not involved in the union or don't know that much about unions, you can just think that it's your employer that provides these things, right? You're like, oh, I, like, why would, why do we even have a union? We have a nice employer. And it's like, don't even think about the fact that it's like, they wouldn't be nice if it wasn't for the union, right? So like, I think that that kind of like misattribution of where like these things come from, like employers are really good at like taking credit for things that they like desperately never wanted to provide um, once it already exists. Um, and yeah, what you're saying, Teddy, about like talking to other people, I just like always encourage people to complain about their jobs to their coworkers. Like even if you're not in a union or not even complain, but like to just kind of think about your coworkers and people who share these conditions. Um, and like that, that can, can go a long way. Um, and just like forming those relationships with your coworkers. And it's like, yeah, like, even if you don't have. I'm assuming like most people who are listening to this show, like, you know, have wage jobs um, or salary jobs. So like that, you know, recognize your power as a worker, even if you're not um, unionized and like, yeah, try to try to bond with your coworkers. And if you are in a union, um, yeah, just like talk to your coworkers about your conditions and you might learn something or find something back when I was like, right, my first job out of high school was a unionized job. And uh, I was not a very politicized person at the time, but I, a lot of my coworkers, there's a very kind of strong anti-union attitude within the the workplace. And a lot of people would kind of try and kind of bond with me by like talking about how much they didn't like it, or they'd complain about I remember, I remember like this one person, we were kind of on a break and like, you know, he pointed to like this city of Winnipeg worker who looked like there, he was maybe like mowing city property or something. And was like, oh, like this guy probably makes $25 an hour and look, he's doing nothing. And I was like, I want to make, I want to make that much money and not have as much pressure. Like, why do we have to kind of assume that we have to take other people down in order to get better conditions for ourselves. And I would, I would try and kind of turn a lot of these things back on these people, even like, I really didn't know much about left-wing politics or anything at the time, but I kind of got a bit of a sense of like, there seems to be something 
that I don't like in this kind of attitude um, that's kind of really pointing blame or pointing frustration at other workers or at um, the union itself. And I, I'm sure there's issues with the union, but like I had also just come from a very similar job that was not unionized, that paid so much significantly lower that I was like quite grateful for it. The bosses probably wants us to fight between ourselves. That's how they win. Yeah, okay. I'm gonna add one one story like kind of similar about like work workplace union and, and coworkers and stuff and just like the importance of communication. Um, so I, I don't know if I said in the introduction of this, but like the last union I was a part of was um PSAC as like a teaching assistant and as a research assistant at Queen's University. And like I think it might have been during my my early days of that union or, or earlier that they won, like had a pretty big win of getting like so teaching, uh, teacher's assistants had like a set pay, um, like hourly wage, but research assistants didn't. So research assistants could make like huge amounts of money or like minimum wage. Like it was totally just like all over the place. The union like successfully got us a set wage for research assistant, which I actually think was the same as teaching assistant. And some people were mad because it was like meant that they would make less money, but like all in all, it was like very good. Um, but we found out like some, a friend of mine and I found out that people in our department, like new master students were accepting like RA positions that were not called RA positions from profs for way less than the rate. So we're basically scabbing, but they didn't even know, you know, like they didn't even know what, like the profs were just like taking full advantage of the fact that these like are just master students who need money to pay rent and eat, right? To, to pay them less than the like set uh, wage for research assistance. And I just feel like that situation could have been totally avoided had there just been more like, like of us talking to each other and like sharing like that information about like how much you make and like how much different, you know, what's expected and what you're entitled to and all those sorts of things. Do you have anything to plug in particular? Anything you want, like any things you're working on now that you would want people to support or know about? I, I have over 36 collective agreements. So I, like, I'm, we're bargaining all, all the time. I'm sure it's, you know, something is gonna come out. So I'm just waiting. <laughs> I'm also working on the Women's March. We're going to have one um, this month or next month. I, I've been trying to get one together because of COVID. I couldn't, I couldn't have an in-person march for, for the longest time. Uh, this year, we will be focusing on women and, and, and in, in, in war-affected countries like Ukraine, Palestine, and Afghanistan. So we, we, we're getting speakers from those countries. Like I say, the union has to be involved in social justice and and worry about things that's beyond the collective agreement. That's the only way that we can make true gains for everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Solidarity Winnipeg podcast. If you'd like to learn more about who we are and what we do, 
you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Solidarity Winnipeg. But really, the best way to keep in touch and follow what's happening in Winnipeg is to sign up for our newsletter at www.solidaritywinnipeg.ca. If you want to reach out to us directly with questions or comments, you can send us an email to info at solidaritywinnipeg.ca.